by Matusa X Labs. This is a series of discussions looking at tech-enabled innovation and how it's reshaping our world. I'm your host, Audrey, and today I'd like to look at the evolution of innovation in corporate environments. And here in East London, we have Stephen Wood as our guest. He is the head of innovation in Virtusa X Labs. So welcome, Stephen. Hi, Audrey. Cool. So just digging right in, what are the different approaches to innovation and where did it start? Well, I think um, although sort of innovation is kind of ubiquitous on corporate agendas at the moment, if we think back to, to where it started, um, typically you'd have a, an R&D facility where you'd look at you know, how you would develop your products. And these gradually morphed. So one of the most uh, famous examples is Procter & Gamble. And, and when Lafley became CEO, one of the things he, he did was look at the R&D lab and he said that all of the people working there were really obsessed by molecules. And they were divorced from the, the way that people were using the product. So what he did was took his innovation people from the labs and then took them out and put them into the customer environment. And to support this, they started up uh, a lab, uh, an innovation lab. And it didn't just have those molecule-obsessed uh, scientists in it. It had a multidisciplinary team. Uh, it had people who had backgrounds in architecture and design and technology and consumer behavior. And by bringing all of these people together, they helped to generate new ideas and new products that helped to differentiate P&G. Hmm. So those, those initial people that evolved from you know, basic R&D into sort of innovation labs tend to be more in the commodity uh, area. So having products that you know, your competitor had a pretty similar product. So if you wanted to bring out like a, a better mousetrap or a better diaper, innovation was one way to look at where could we go next? What are the, the next categories that potentially other people haven't thought about that we can bring to market? Okay, so generally it seems like every corporation today has an innovation lab. Why is that? I think the primary reason is it's a reaction against uh, the rise of digital disruptors. So the traditional companies have looked and they've seen the people that are threatening them are not their competitors of yesterday. It's actually people who are coming in and they are breaking things. They're looking at these companies and saying, well, they're very different to us and they're actually getting more success. Maybe they're even carving out the best bits of our industry and leaving us with the less salubrious bits and the less profitable bits. How do we become more like them? And the labs, you know, we can see the labs as almost a reaction to the emergence of these new competitors. So how do we become like the startups? Well, actually, they innovate and they do new things at a much different speed to us. So the labs present one way to, to, to do this, to accelerate your innovation program. Mm -hmm. So the labs in the corporate environments, how are they going? Well, I think we can see a, a difference in the way that companies have actually adopted labs. Uh, we, we can see at one end of the spectrum, we've got people that are doing it as a, a, a me-too venture, because it's a trendy thing to do. It's a really simple thing to set up a, a, a lab, fill it with, design the furniture, cover it with post-it notes and, and get people with sort of design backgrounds and tech backgrounds to, to work in it. But that doesn't mean you're naturally going to get anything out of it. The companies that have seen the adoption of innovation in a lab environment as something that can really influence the, the core DNA of the company, they understand that the shift is more than just buying a space and filling it with furniture. They understand that you're going to have to take the company on a journey that looks at you know, people, processes, and technology. So you know, in some labs, you can see you know, um, the, the, the trappings of like, the first generation innovation labs, where you do have the Lego on the walls and the, the, the living gardens and lots of blonde furniture, but there's no one there. 
in other other labs, they've actually reacted against this. They've decided not to adopt this aesthetic, um, but to fundamentally change the way they engage with the business. And in those situations, you find that actually they're generating more value. So do you think corporates are starting to create these innovation labs as a protective shield to taking risk or experimenting? I think some companies um, do set up the conditions that enable labs to be more successful. And in those, uh, in those companies, you do have you know, different sets of metrics. Your performance and your, your initiatives, your projects are measured against different KPIs because you're going to have a greater risk uh, of failure. You're going to have uh, longer periods before the ROI kicks in for, for uh, innovation-focused projects. I think where companies run into trouble is uh, where they've set up the lab as a tick box me too initiative and they still continue to try and measure that business unit along the same lines as they measure the other lines of business within their organization. And that's like comparing apples with oranges. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, it's very, very difficult. So we've covered the current landscape around the evolution of innovation. So what's next? So if we look at the way that labs are evolving, we're going to see a separation of the ways, and it's going to go three ways. So the first way, if we look at those who have superficially set up labs just to, to tick a box uh, and have not seen much return on that investment, basically because it's a tick box exercise, we'll see that innovation will pass out into the, into the wider business. So if we look at the companies that have set up formal labs, they've provided the right sort of processes, people and, and, and tooling to make them successful. I think we're still going to see a change in the way that they, uh, that they approach innovation. I think as, as we move into uh, a period where people begin to scrutinize return on investment from internal projects, there is going to be a pressure to focus less on, on, on moonshots and more on looking at how we can balance a portfolio of innovation objectives that does have something that's a little bit more near term, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit less radical. So for those innovation labs, you're going to see a closer working with the business and maybe a blurring of the definition of what innovation truly is. So we've seen some labs in Canada that when they discuss their portfolio, you can see that the moonshots are still there but you also see projects that are applying emerging technologies more in a way that we call optimization, maybe even calling it sort of incremental innovation, but it's not gonna give you the 10X return. So they're moving into more of a, a role that balances internal consultancy, optimization, incremental innovation, uh, and moonshots. Uh, and this portfolio approach will guarantee longevity and success. Uh, the third way takes a, a successful formula for innovation and it says, well, how do we enable more people in a wider organization? Mm -hmm. So how do we take the tools and the processes and maybe some of the resources and not try and bring people into a hub to drive innovation, but actually empower people in the wider business? So we're seeing organizations set up collaboration tools to make sure that you know, different parts of the organization have a, a clear understanding of what's happening holistically uh, around innovation initiatives so that they can collaborate, but they're not all forced to come to a central hub. Uh, a lot of this is due to the way that innovation labs were funded in the past. So even if they were successful, 
if everyone had to chip in from a central budget to fund an innovation lab, you'd always have the question uh, about, well, actually, Audrey, you're getting more out of it than I am, mm -hmm. so I want to pay less than you. Mm -hmm. uh, the logical conclusion of that, um, <laughs> of that discussion is kind of Brexity, um, mm -hmm. where you, you yeah. end up with people wanting to opt out of the lab because they don't think they're really getting much out of it. So in this new format, actually, what you're doing is you're saying, actually, we'll give you the tools uh, and we'll give you the resources if you want to call on that, but you can drive your own uh, innovation agenda within your line of business. You've got slightly more autonomy, but we've also learned from five or six years of, of delivering innovation projects, we've learned what best practice is. So we can help you to structure it. So again, you get this, uh, it's more of a fostering role, whereas the, you know, the last model we talked about was more of a sort of a centralized hub of expertise model. Great, so we have time just for one more question. Uh, what are the ingredients to create a healthy lab? For most organizations now, they've gone through a period of, of setting up their labs and they're now looking at how do they reassess it? How do they optimize it? How do they take it to the next? As has always been the case, C-level sponsorship is vital. It, it allows you to take more risks and bring people from the organization in to form those multidisciplinary teams. You know, without having you know, board level sponsorship, it's really difficult for you to bring in maybe some left field uh, individuals who will become the, the grit in your oyster or to take people from different business units and bring them together. There'll be this, you know, there'll be this pull to towards sort of tribalism and uh, that's mine and this is yours. It also helps you to establish better expectations for your, your returns. And again, that, that, that's always been the case for successful innovation labs. And all those that have delivered great returns to the market have always been set targets that look at what's next and how can we get there rather than how can we deliver something in the next two weeks. If we look at you know, the different models and what enables people to move to maybe the, the federated model of innovation where you, know, you have a, a central hub of resources but actually you're looking to empower people out in the business. In order to do that, you've got to have the right tools. And one of the things I think organizations are battling with at the moment is how do you coherently link up uh, an organization where you might have you know, one team's on Slack, one team's Asana, one team's on Trello, one team's on Microsoft Teams, uh, and you need to make sure that you know, if you're having a conversation about a topic like AI or blockchain, in a specific area of your business, these conversations don't duplicate, they link up. So I think one of the things that organizations are struggling with at the moment is the multiplicity of communication channels that allegedly bring people together, but in fact, you know, without a corporate standard, um, tend to fragment. So having a platform for innovation that drives this central narrative and brings people together is, is going to be one of the things that's key. And what are some of the other tools that corporations can adopt to really bake innovation into their DNA? I think um, one of the things that has been neglected is horizon scanning. So how do you uh, identify what's around the corner, what's next? And, and typically organizations will turn to sort of vendors and say, what's next? And unsurprisingly, they'll think what's next is what they have in their portfolio. So what you need is what I've got. So understanding how do we forge links with those people that are looking at emerging technologies that are you know, going to have commercial impact in the next maybe 
three to five years. So we can start planning uh, around, okay, if these are going to reshape the world of my customer, my colleagues, uh, and reshape my corporation, what are the things that we need to start thinking about now? So this is, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, this is one of the things where maybe the speculative design comes into play, where you can look for those weak signals uh, and start to put together scenarios that look at what's happening in the world from a human perspective, what's happening in the world from a tech perspective. We can even look at startups, VCs, we can look at academia to try and pick up the vibe that you know, will ultimately impact on us and start to build different pictures. So a different approach to horizon scanning and, and more investment there always yields better results. Great, I think that's a really nice wrap up. Uh, that's all we have for today. So thank you so much, Stephen, for joining. Thank you. And catch you next time for our next podcast on tech-enabled innovation. Don't forget to subscribe and speak soon. Ciao.